podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Phil, great to see you as ever. How are you, sir? Yeah, great to be here as always. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, enjoying the sunshine still and uh, actually just been watching some snooker. Um, the British Open qualifiers started. I was just watching Mink play. Um, I think she just lost, actually, just as I left the TV screen. But yeah, nice to be watching the game again. Indeed. It's always great to be catching up on the latest action. And of course, the European Masters is now just a, a week away. So we're slowly but surely uh, getting back into that time when we're really enjoying regular sort of big time snooker. Well, Phil, we're going to get straight on with it because we are delighted to say that we have another guest for you in our summer season of episodes. And it really is a top one. Today's guest has been involved with the game all his life. A former professional who played three times at the Crucible in the 1990s, he moved into snooker politics and has twice been chairman of the WPBSA. This second spell has been something of a golden era with the sport growing enormously and expanding its boundaries like never before. It's also managed to not just survive, but thrive in the midst of a global pandemic. We are very happy to say that Jason Ferguson joins us on the podcast. Hello, Jason. How are you? Hello. I am very well, thank you. And hello to you two guys who um, year on year keep reporting amazing things about our sport. And look, thank you for having me on here. It's an absolute honour to speak to you today. Too kind from Jason there, but yeah, no, it's a great pleasure to have us have you on here. It really is. And do you know what, Jason? One thing that Phil and I are absolutely adamant about, we're not going to forget your playing days. And we're not going to let anyone else do it either. Well, do you know, it, it's funny because it, it's kind of so far so in my past now that I kind of forget myself sometimes. And, and actually, somebody came up to me a, a few weeks ago and said, oh, Jason, is that... I never knew you were a snooker player. You know, this happens all the time to me now. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I've been in this sport all my life in in one form or another. And I had 14 years on the tour in, in total, I think. Might have been a little bit less. And the last few years of that, of course, got a bit complicated because I was working as well. But um, it, yeah, it just seemed like a long time ago. But I've never lost the love, you know. I absolutely love this sport and... I have to tell you, every time I see it, I get that same feeling that I had when I first walked into that that Butlins holiday camp when I was when I was very young, and I went, "Wow, look at all this!" You know, I, I still love it like so much. Well, you kind of uh, already asked a little bit. It, it sounds like there's a Butlins link there, but what what did what did first make you fall in love with this game? I guess was it parents for you to tell us about it? Yes, I, I mean, I you know, I grew up in a, a very tough working family. Um, you know, my my mum and dad, my, mom, my my father worked down the mine. I grew up in a mining family in a mining town. And um, it was, you know, a, a life of my father doing night shifts seven days a week sometimes. And 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 the one thing we did, we, we went on holiday. My mum worked in a factory. Uh, she used to fold jumpers for Marks and Spencers, believe it or not. And, and, and you know, just a hardworking family, I think, is, is what I grew up in. But I got introduced to snooker really through holidays and we went to we, we were big fans of North Wales. We used to spend a lot of time in a place called um, Abbasock and Patheli 
some of you will know that the Slem Peninsula, which is a beautiful place. And there was a Butlins holiday camp there. And it was a real traditional old, you know, um, holiday camp. And a lot of mining families went there for holidays. And I walked in there. My father took me into a the what was the billiard room. They used to have huge billiard rooms in these places. And I walked in, there may be 30, 30 plus tables. And I was just mesmerized with the sport. I was young. I was maybe, I think maybe 11 or 12, I, I guess, some, somewhere around there. And I was just, you know, I just couldn't wait to have a go. And, and my, so my dad really, you know, introduced me to it. And I, and I loved it so much. I think I drove him mad for the rest of the week, you know, uh, <laughs> every time we'd had breakfast or, oh, are we going, are we, you know, are we going to play snooker? We go, you know, so, and that was it. I just fell in love with it. And um, on returning from that holiday, I had an aunt, Aunt Ada, and she, she had a, uh, in their house, they had a small five foot table. It was like a piece of, um, plywood you know piece of wood very very wobbly and it sat on just sat on a table or anything and she gave it to me and I, I was young and, and they that she gave me this table and I balanced it on the top of two chairs in our front room for many years <laughs> and that's that's really how it began um and uh wow it's a long time ago and how how and when did it become a sort of going concern as a job and um, were your parents uh, supportive of that or were you expected to go down the mines as well? Yes, I, I think, I mean, growing up in what was an industrial town, a uh, town was called Mansfield, um, you know, there was a lot of coal mining in Nottinghamshire around that time. And it, it's actually what everybody did. Everybody went down the mine. You know, everybody in my school went down the mine after leaving school. And, you know, you were, it was just, I guess it was expected. My, my mum and dad were very different, actually. And I think the thing that changed it was that, I was playing every day on this small table, you know, and it's not that long, even though it rolled off everywhere, you know, you, you start to sort of hone your skills. Right. And, I, and I, I guess I'd shown a little bit of, you know, ability and talent for it. And then having started to go down to local, you know, local clubs um, and play in local leagues and start to do quite well, you know, my, my mum and dad were very supportive uh, of me. I have to say I grew up in, you know, might've been hard work, you know, uh, for my mom and dad but I grew up in a wonderful family that gave me the opportunity I think is what I could say and um, yeah I, I left school I was I think I was almost 16 when I left school um, I didn't go into further education and I was I, I wanted to be a joiner actually when I left school mm. the last thing I did in my joinery class at school was made a snooker cube and I, I, funny enough <laughs> and uh, but I wanted to be a joiner I was very good at woodwork and and I always liked uh, making things and and I and I just couldn't get a job. I mean, the, the mines were closing. It was a, a it was a very difficult time, you know, at that, that time in my life in terms of work, what was out there. I ended up working at B&Q. I ended up working at the local B&Q store. But after after seven months of working, um, stacking shelves and working in there, um, I actually left that job to play snooker full time. Uh, say full time, work part time as well, and help out in the clubs, which I, I guess many players have done. But I was playing more, you know, I was playing every weekend, weekend, uh, week in, week out. And my mum and dad were able to, my, you know, my mum on her own a lot of the time were able to get me to events, you know, to proams and this type of thing. Um, so I, I did a, I did a good stint of travelling around and playing in amateur events, as many players have done, and. You know, from there, I was I was 21. It was my 21st birthday when I turned professional. 
And, and I really should have turned professional a year earlier because uh, I, I won the Pontins in 1988, which many snooker players would know as the as the mecca of snooker events. This was, you know, every year there were there were four four or five of these major amateur events, huge numbers of entries, hundreds of entries. And I, and I won the Autumn Festival in 1988. And this this was like, I was 19 years old. This was kind of a turning point because I was okay up to that point. I was quite good, but I wasn't the best as an amateur. There were a lot better amateur players around than me, but I, I kind of advanced quite quickly from, from then. And uh, I think that's a time as well, looking back, one, one thing I, I always find so magical about sport is it's, it's the friends in the community for life that get created, you know, and, and I was hanging around then, you know, people like Ken Doherty, who's still a great friend of mine today. You know, we were playing competitively together, but we're actually Peter Lyons, you know, again, uh, one of our board members. Um, we were playing all over the country. Good times, you know, good times when, you, when you're young and it's exciting. But yeah, so between the sort of years of 19, I qualified to be into the final playoffs. We had a pro ticket series at the time. Four events a year, I was in the final playoffs, and I lost to Gary Filtness, who's still playing. He's playing on our World Seniors Tour, and he does remind me of it every time I see him. Actually, he'll probably ring me in a minute if he's listening. You know, he's one of those. But um, <laughs> he beat me five four, honestly, and I, and I was just on the verge of turning pro a year earlier, and uh, it was a big blow, to be honest. It was it was a major blow. I remember it well. It was the Guildhall at Preston. It's funny how you remember the ball you missed as well. You know, yeah, I was over it until you met, until you asked me about it. Actually. But, anyway. <laughs> but but uh, but yeah. So you know, and I played. I really played really full time around that time. And uh, but eventually, I, I went through the same system, the pro ticket system, and finally qualified to be a pro. It was my twenty first birthday, and a great friend of mine was with me. He used to look after me at the time, Ray Schilling. Um, he was a property developer from London and he had a snooker club in my area and he was with me, his family were with me and um, my mom, dad, I mean, it was friends, family, um, you know, it was a great occasion. It was at the Norbrecht Castle Hotel uh, late in the evening and it was, uh, it was a big, it was a big thing to achieve, you know, as an amateur, I think a lot of players would, would probably relate to this. You fight for that one day that you turn professional. It means everything, mm. and, you know, and I'll, and I'll talk a bit more about that because I love that moment when when I see players achieve that tour card these days. Mm. It was it's a great thing you achieve it, but actually, then there's the next bit about what do we do now? You know, what's next? Mm. And for me, it was disappointing because we were we were playing every week. Then we were playing in pro ams all over. We were traveling a little bit as amateur players, but actually, we turned pro. There were six or eight events. You went straight into the qualifiers and actually there, there really wasn't that much activity even back then on the professional tour. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a downer. And then I finally got myself, you know, I got myself on track a little bit and um, did okay for a few years, you know. Well, you, you certainly did. But I, I also, I love to hear you talk about that moment about becoming professional as well. And Phil and I said this before, we had the privilege, and don't use that word lightly, of sitting in on Alan McManus's final press conference as a professional last year. Yeah. And he said his favourite moment, the one that comes to him most, not winning the Masters, not winning all his events, it was turning pro. He still remembers that moment, and, and, and I, I love to hear that. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I can relate to that, because he and I turned professional on the same day. 
So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, that's a lovely bit of symmetry. Yeah. But it wasn't long before you were making an impression. In fact, by 1992, you qualified for the World Championship and played at the Crucible and gave friend of the podcast, Neil Folds, a really good match. In fact, your Crucible story was all about sort of that classic sporting thing the nearly thing you, you lost 10 8 on each occasion against Stephen Hendry in his pomp against John Higgins but that first time against Neil Foles now that must have been very special for you to play in that arena it was and I, I think you know I, re- I remember the match I was so far behind in the match early on but I was like a it's the thing you've dreamed of isn't it walking down the steps and I think this is the one thing people ask me when they say, are you going to, are you going to move from the crucible? I mean, do you really want to be the person that says you can't walk down the steps as a crucible thing to a young don't, player? Don't worry, don't worry, that will, right. that will come up later. I'm sure. But, but actually, you know, the, the, it, it was a magical moment, but I, I was like a rabbit in, a head, in the headlights, you know. I was, I was frightened to death that all of a sudden there, were, there was all this attention and... And I didn't play well at all in the first session and uh, I got badly behind. And I think most people, you know, back then probably had written me off because at at that time in the sport, the seeds generally won. You know, it's now, now you can't, it's hard to predict those first, uh, you know, first rounds at the Crucible. But actually back then, you know, it it was always um, difficult for a a rookie or a new player to come through. Um, but yeah, I, I narrowly lost in the end. I got back in the match, played all right in the second. You know, I got to get back into it, and you know, it's it is a it is one of those, isn't it? It could have been. You don't know what could happen, could you? It's hard. You should never look back, I suppose. You know. But I like. I did. I did learn to like the big occasion. I, I enjoyed the Crucible, and um, you know, as I say, you mentioned there, I lost to Hendry, and that was the you know. A big blow, but I also lost to Higgins. I lost to John Higgins the year he won his first world championship there as well. And um again, 10-8, believe it or not. But yeah, yeah I, I liked it. I liked I liked I liked it. But I got distracted, you know. I was I was doing when I think by the time I'd really got my confidence, I got a little bit distracted with the politics. But I think the reason I was distracted with the politics of the sport was actually the you know, and I, and I share this sometimes now. I sometimes look at the calendar and think there's a few gaps that, you know, there's a few gaps we need to fill. From me back then, six tournaments I was playing in at one stage as a professional snooker player in the top 32. It's not enough. It's not enough to keep you occupied mentally. It's not enough to 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 get you working hard, to keep preparing, you know, and and I would have loved the system that we that, that we've had. You know, I talk, I'll talk about it pre-COVID when we were up to huge numbers of events. I would have loved that system as a player, uh, and I and I guess that was partly how we designed it. Really, is what what you know what what would make everybody perform um, to their best, and it, it's opportunity. So, any I mean, you said before it's probably best not to look back too much. But any any regrets or disappointments about the playing days, or are you happy with obviously getting into the politics then? gets you where you are now, I guess. So that's a positive. Yeah, I, I, you do look back and you you always look back at a few balls you've missed and things. But, you know, how many times have other players missed balls and, and given you the chance? You know, so it, you should never really look at it that way. Sport is it's about winning and losing. I guess getting distracted back then, it definitely cost me my playing career. I was in the top 32 when I joined the board. It was Terry Griffiths who, who actually rang me and said, look, we need some younger people involved and... You know, as a young player, you're always smart, well presented. We really want you to join the board. There were vacancies. So I joined the board back then. And, you know, 
I found it, it consumed me after a while and I couldn't practice. And the last, certainly the last two years of my playing career, I wasn't practicing at all. I was turning up to events having, you know, it was a, it was a highly volatile time within the sport. There were large numbers of court cases ongoing. And as a young person with probably without the experience, it was a lot to handle. You know, it was a lot to handle, took its toll on my life, but well, look, I, I don't have any regrets. I learned huge, you know, I, I am I gained huge amounts of knowledge through that, mm. through that early period and learned some valuable lessons and um, to come back and be able to carry on uh, from some of it from where I left off, particularly in developing Asia, which is something I was keen on back then um, was really a great opportunity, you know, and I have to thank Barry for that, for making the phone call. <laughs> well, I, I don't mean to be flippant, but when you talk about you, you learned some valuable lessons, I guess you learned that, you know, that's not the way for snooker regimes to run because it it was, as you say, a pretty un, unharmonious time. If you think about the decade before Barry Hearn came back into snooker, there were very few events. There was uh, often an uncomfortable atmosphere, an unpleasant atmosphere, I think, around in, in officialdom. So I guess, you know, you've taken a lot of that on. And, you know, it's been an entirely more settled ship in this second era of you being around. Yes, definitely. And I think it was an exciting time because the opportunities were there. Um, I, I had no doubts coming back the second time. Uh, in fact, you know, when, when Barry, one of the things that I learned from the first time was that we had to separate the political uncertainty away from the commercial operation. You know, the company World Snooker Limited was something that was set up under my first um, term as chairman. It was it was it was a model to actually try and separate the, the politics and give stability to commercial partners, because that was a huge problem back then. Um, it nearly worked. I, I You know, it nearly worked back then. I, maybe it was the wrong time. Um, but that was really the great thing about coming back was was coming back into that and having the chance to shape it. And, and really get get involved in it and and also shape the WPBSA because it, whilst it was always there as a members association, it didn't develop the sport back then. It didn't grow the sport. It didn't it didn't look at the feeder systems. It didn't look at the development on the ground. And you know now it does. Now it's a it's a fully functioning world governing body. But I think one important thing to say is that you had spent more time in local politics away from the snooker field, didn't you? Including being a mayor. You were a mayor of a town, I think not far from where you grew up, certainly yeah. in that sort of area. I mean, that must have given you an enormous insight into uh, the world of governance, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, um, I, do you know what? And the one thing that really, really, I have to look back again, that person that was with me when I turned professional, Ray Schilling, he'd become a councillor in my local town. And when I when I came out of snooker, um, he came to see me. He said, look, he said, come and join the council with me. I thought, actually, you know, that might be quite nice. Yeah, we were involved in the regeneration of a mining town. So that was really um, what it was all about. We were in a town where, um, you know, a lot of boarded up shops, you know, closure of the mine was the closure of the community. And we had the chance that there were a few of us that were quite entrepreneurial in our attitude. We, we got together and we, we did we did great things, I suppose. You know, the, uh, we had a thriving town, actually. Um, the town was called Ollerton and Booton. It was part of New York and Shorewood District. And um, uh, I, I did think that that perhaps that was the route I was going to go in life from this point. I didn't think 
I would ever go back to snooker at that point. Although I, I though I still had a huge passion towards it, I'd been out of it a while, and and I'd, I'd kind of got got on this, um, you know, doing other things and involved with property regeneration, some property development, and planning up planning and town planning. Very interesting, actually. And actually, you know, the things you learn, it, it is about governance. It is about controlling budgets. If you can stand up and defend, you know, a 3% council tax rise and things like that, you know, it, it puts you in good stead of, of what of what, of what what you can do. So I learned a huge amount. Again, I have to thank Ray Schilling because he was the man that, that actually got me involved in that. And then, then, you know, a few years later, Barry called me and said, look, he said, I heard you're the mayor of the town. You know, we need somebody to come back and... Uh, and look after the WPBSA. We're we're going in. <laughs> There's going to be a big restructure. Um, so yeah, it was it was great. But it was again. It's I like learning. Actually, that's what I like in life. I love learning about things, and I, I love challenges, and I love projects. And I, and I, and I, this whole sport is a project, and it still is. This we're nowhere near what we're capable of. Nowhere near, in my view, honestly. It sounds like you've sort of unintentionally crafted the perfect CV for the job you're doing now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess that's how it turned out, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, look, long may it continue. I love my work and, you know, I want to, uh, there's so many things we want to do with this sport still. And um, it, it's in the it's 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 in the right corporate structure. It's it, The structure's right going forward now, but there is a huge amount to do and there's still a few mountains to climb. Just one more thing on the playing. I'm always interested with, former players do you ever pick up the queue now even just for a knock around in the club or is it just firmly away forever oh, do, do you know what i didn't play for so many years at all um probably i don't know six or seven years i never didn't pick up a queue and I, i've probably only had since i stopped playing 10 or 15 frames of snooker in total i think um but i actually say i have to say in the last couple of years i've probably had four or five of those frames <laughs> And that's just through through people saying, oh, come on, you know, have a go. But you, you forget how hard it is. I mean, the, the biggest problem with snooker, it's just too difficult. You know, it's so hard, it's so hard to, to get somebody to a, just a basic standard that they can really enjoy it and involve with it. It's a real challenge. And, and when you don't play, you stiffen up a bit and you you, know, you find that you, you you think you can pop the balls and actually you miss them by a mile. You think, what's going on there? Um, but I, I've, yeah, I, I, I love the game, and I, one day, one day, I will play recreationally. I think um, when I've got more time, if, if there ever is that day, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that well, that makes sense. Um, you, you took the phone call from Barry Hearn. You returned to snooker, and let's be honest, it's been as as we said at the top, a, a tremendous era for the game. That must be reflected. It, it's very much a positive story. We will get into some of those more, more awkward areas shortly. But the important thing we definitely want to emphasize, congratulations for keeping Snooker going in the pandemic. My goodness me. I mean, that, that was as tough a challenge as any any sport could ever face. And to return as quickly as you did, to keep it going, to give us events behind closed doors and to keep the calendar as regular as they have was a great, great achievement. Yeah, thank you. It, it was. And I think, you know, again, working with a group of passionate people that always think, actually, maybe there is a way <laughs> is really what triggered that. And, it, you know, the great team, Nigel Oldfield, our operations director, has been terrific through that. 
Um, but it was a time where we, you know, you suddenly, I think the year before that, we did something like 28 events around the world the year before pandemic. And the calendar was congested. Players were complaining about travel. And, you know, it was, it was hectic, honestly. We were, we, we were going everywhere. And in between that, we were, we were still traveling, trying to trying to do new things as well. So it was a crazy time. And then eventually we ended up in this position where you, you weren't allowed to do that anymore because there was a pandemic in the world. And, and I think it was a big shock for everybody. And, you know, obviously, you know, everybody suffered. But, uh, you know, some people and families have lost loved ones and, you know, that your, your, your heart goes out to what we've been through, um, some people. With us, you know, it, we after this period of sort of, um lockdown for a while we did start to regroup get together speak to government you know start to wonder what we can do and I, I guess we had the perfect sport really to try and create that bubble environment and um it was great to get get the players working and playing again because it's not just you know i, I don't underestimate you know the, the position i'm in i'm not just responsible for the sport you know more importantly i'm responsible for every single one of those players their incomes, their livelihoods, their, you know, their, their houses and their families. And, you know, that, that, that for me was the driver to try and get, get the players out there again. Um, but it was, it was a, a tough time, a tough period trying to, trying to run those events was complicated, hugely complicated at the time. And a lot of scrutiny we were under from health and safety and everything, but it worked. We managed to keep going. And um, in some ways, I think snooker came out of it well, because people were actually watching live sport and actually i think we gained a lot of fans i think we gained a lot of new fans through it so um but that 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 part of it worked out you definitely hear that a lot either new fans or fans that uh, old fans that have come back to it during the lockdown um a lot sort of started listening to us who've told us that they started watching you know the championship league or whatever was going on so yeah it was a I don't know if that was the main, you know, as you say, you were mainly looking after the players and looking after the sport, but uh, there were a lot of latent fans or people who just wanted to watch anything that were there to be grabbed at that time, I guess. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the comments I heard was that, you know, people, young people, you know, were saying, oh, did you watch the snooker? You know, and, and perhaps young people that never really would admit they used to watch the snooker were saying, oh, did you watch the snooker last night to their friends? And, and I heard the conversation just coming up so so often and um you know it, it just shows you what a great product we've got um and, and i know there was nothing else on but actually I, uh, one thing we do know is we've retained we've retained those fans for sure yeah which is brilliant it's absolutely brilliant but of course the effects of the pandemic are still being felt and we i know sometimes we all talk as if the pandemic's over that that's not the case do you have any realistic idea, Jason, of when we might be able to return to China on a, a, a relatively regular basis? I know yeah, we're in I mean, Hong Kong, but I'm talking, you know, the, the events we're used to on the mainland. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great, um, it's a great question, of course, and, and obviously there are no guarantees because there, there is, you know, currently no, no way of doing it. The one thing I do know is we do have events to deliver. We have events under contract to deliver in China on the mainland. And actually that's why there are gaps in the calendar. We can't just say, well, we'll fill those gaps because if we if we get to the end of October, say November, and we get the go ahead from China to say, we can put them on in the new year, we can't just turn around to our promoters and partners and business relations and say, 
well, actually, sorry about that. We've got another event now. You know, so we have to keep some some flexibility. Uh, realistically, I, I, you know, it's certainly not going to be this year, as we know. Um, it's not impossible that it that it wouldn't happen in the new year. Um, there are a couple of gaps in you know around February March time. It is possible that we will get some kind of go ahead. It is possible that we'd get some kind of way of delivering an event under restrictions, maybe one or two. We're not going to get up to the six events that we've been up to. We're not going to be going backwards and forwards every other week. We know that. But it, but I do think that it, it is possible. Um, you know, the, the demand is enormous, actually, for the events. You know, we, we know from our television that the demand is enormous to watch snooker in China. And we know that the demand is there. We're still speaking to all our promoters and new promoters as well. New partners are coming to us saying, you know, when it opens up, we want to come back. Um, I feel for our players in all this because they're the ones that's suffering. We are still in this pandemic period. Whilst we think it's over and we can deliver events, we're very fortunate here in the UK. We've we've actually got, you know, we've, we've got things back up to speed. But actually around the world, it's not the same. And there are, there are still huge travel problems. There are huge costs involved in travel. There are huge restrictions on, on moving kit around. It's, high, it's, it's fraught with problems at this moment in time. But we are working on it and we are capable of it. Uh, and it's really now about, about the government, the central government saying, actually, international sport can come back and here it is how it's going to work. This is one of the reasons the Hong Kong event is actually so important. It's to demonstrate that we can operate an international event in an Asian region, whilst it's a very small number of players. If the model works, it does give us the opportunity to look at that and speak to government about whether it's possible to do a bigger event on the mainland. Um, but of course, for that to happen, we need flights to come back. We need airports to open. We need, you know, routes are not open and not fluid like they were. So that really it really is purely down to travel at this moment in time was the winter olympics much help or much of a gauge because we were we were told at the time that that was going to be the sort of big tester um did you get any sort of correspondence about whether that was helpful or not yeah i mean clearly there was a lot of restrict a lot of uh, restrictions in place um was it helpful i don't know it's a very different i think a very different model um to what 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 we could probably do I mean, the way way we are in China at the moment is, and we are we are in regular talks with them, and as you know, I'm I'm quite heavily involved in that. It, it it's it's really it, it's really just the approvals that we need uh, to move forward. We think the model that we've got, you know, even if we had to go back to to some kind of semi bubble, or I mean, they're, they're talking of the bubble loop, which is really how how Hong Kong is likely to be delivered. That'll be how that'll be airport hotel venue hotel and back to the airport i mean look it's not pretty it's not the fun that we used to have but it's a start and we we've got to try and push as far as hard as we can to make that happen um so yeah i think you know there are there are various opportunities there are various ways of doing these things of course we're fortunate here that we've actually been able to open up we've got crowds back we've got we've got proper events on mm. What, what's the situation with the with the six reds in Thailand? I was listening to a snooker scene on the way in this morning, and uh, Dave was mentioning that, that one might be struggling. 
Yeah, it, it, it's actually to do with some internal changes that are going on in Thailand at the moment. Um, what, what we've got is we've got um, we've got a within the sports ministry there. You've you've got a, a board and a, and a system within the billiard sports, uh, which is due to be replaced. And the timing of that is is actually terrible for the six Reds. Um, so we're not quite sure what the outcome is going to be, but we do know that there, we will hear some news um, probably within the next week now. We'll have some news on it. If it is, I mean, it looks like it's going to be postponed. Um, a postponement means that we'll we'll be looking for alternative dates to do it. It's a great event, by the way. Mm. Uh, I have to say the last six Reds that we did in 2019 it really started to look like a, a you know a big ranking event it was look it had that look and feel about it we had we had you know all star tables they were all you know all match set pockets it was it was a, a real tough event to win um so it's got it's got great potential and it's such a popular game across asia and especially in thailand six reds that it's uh, i'm sure it'll come back on in due course mm -hmm. mm. well we we've actually had a you know, quite a bit of interest, as you can imagine, about, you know, general events in the Far East, when we can go back to China. And there is one email here from from friend of the podcast, Gareth Williams. And I think you kind of answered this with, already to some extent with your optimistic noises about China, which, which is brilliant. Uh, Gareth says, hello, Nick and Phil. Please could you ask Jason whether the WPBSA has made any contingency plans in the event mainland China remains closed off for the foreseeable future? We think that may not be the case to use that word foreseeable, meaning the lucrative events there remain off limits for the time being. Given how much money and ranking points one offer for these events, have there been any discussions about the potential need to hold events elsewhere? Uh, perhaps this is the potential to expand the game into different parts of the world as a result of this, making a good situation out of a bad almost. How would you answer well, that? I mean, they're great comments from Gareth, to be quite honest there. I mean, I mean, yes is the answer. The answer is yes. We're looking at the calendar. If we know that those events are not going to happen in China, we know there are gaps in the calendar. And yes, we are looking at new markets and we are looking at the potential of putting some new events on. I mean, an example of that is the Turkish Masters. Big event, huge success. It's already grabbed a nation. There's a huge fan base in Turkey. We've had one event there. There's no snooker there. Hardly any at all, you know, and, and you know, the promoter, uh, Tuba, his team out there, uh, the Nirvana group, the Killick Group Hotel, the, these these people have got around the table and said, actually, we don't really know snooker, but we, we kind of like this. And and it was a huge success. The on free-to-air television, wasn't it? On free-to-air uh, television in Turkey, which was brilliant, main channel. Absolutely. Huge viewing figures, by the way. So we know there's a huge market and we've, what we've got there is a billiard sport playing nation. Uh, the, the traditional game there is three cushion billiards and um, it is everywhere. But actually, snooker has come in there alongside and, and I'm pretty sure it's going to grow. So that that is an example of, of the kind of thing we, we would be looking at to try and fill some of those gaps. We are conscious that, you know, those China events, we've probably lost, you know, it's in the region of probably four million pounds of prize money alone just on the main uh, ranking events that were taking place for those China events. So they are, it is vital that they come back on. It's vital that we keep some fluidity just in case they do. But at the same time, we don't want huge gaps in the calendar and we, we are thinking of, and we are looking at new markets. One for me as well, what's happened with, with the Saudi Arabia event, Jason? I mean, we, we were expecting it obviously towards the start of the pandemic. 
It didn't happen for very obvious reasons. Are, are we going to see it at some stage? Well, do you know what? I mean, I, I, it, this is a, an agreement that Matchroom went into um, because obviously Matchroom is multi-sport and uh, basically it was a multi-sport agreement to deliver a number of events across different sports in Saudi Arabia. We do know that some of that has started uh, with this. There's been some boxing activity out of out there. Um, and I do know um, that um, the team are going out there to actually discuss it and look at how that can develop. Now, it seems to me at the moment it's just getting push you know push down the road a little bit and uh, dates keep getting moved on and we're not getting any dates out of them at the moment um but it, it, i have to say that one's over to barry and the team at matchroom um it, it's part of their group deal uh rather than one that 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 we've been in um directly involved in ourselves we're hopeful we'll see it the middle east i think is a is a great market for us most middle eastern countries do have snooker in some way and and they do have quite a bit of activity and quite a lot of good players as well so it's it is important that we do get a stake in the ground there we thought saudi pre-pandemic great and we were at the planning stage i mean i have to say i did actually make a trip just just before the pandemic and it, but it was a planning trip about what the event's going to be looking like so um yeah things have got a bit stalled there i'm afraid but we're, we're hopeful it'll come back if you had to, this might be trickier than it sounds, but if you had to say like three play, three countries that aren't on the calendar at the minute that you would you would see the most likely uh, tournaments going to, where would they be? Oh, that's so new, new events. Three countries where we would we would go to. I think I'm quite keen on this whole Mediterranean style area. I think I, I, I broached this last year when it, actually during the pandemic, I thought, where can we go? You know, I started some some work on it. I'd love to see us uh, return to Malta for a start. Um, again, small yeah. island, beautiful oh. place. Um, great support for snooker there. Um, I mean, despite a small island, keeps churning great players out year, you know, year on year. We have a full-time training academy in, in Ham Run, which is run by the local federation. We've done a couple of major amateur events out there. That, for me, is one of those target areas. Um, you know, we have to be realistic. We're not going to do the, the biggest events in the world there. But as a destination for the sport, I think something like that would work really well. And likewise, if you start to look at growing markets like Spain and Portugal, and, you know, there is a quite a growing fan base in these areas now. So I think that th those territories are, are, are quite important to think going forward. Middle East is key. We've just touched on the Middle East. Um, I, I would love to see, you know, if, if it is Saudi, great. If not, I would expect Abu Dhabi, Dubai, you know, one of the territories in the UAE, some, somewhere around there to host a major event. So, so, but it, it it's definitely coming. And I, and I think, you know, when we do events like the Turkish Masters, they're in, the Turkish Masters, for me, was a strategic location in the world which can make a real difference. It, it's, it's not only a, a big country with its own national market, it's actually in a location. In, in, it's, it's this centre of the world that sits almost on the edge of the Middle East. It sits on the edge of Europe. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting place to develop. And I, I'm really excited about Turkey. I, I am, honestly. I've, I've been out there in the last few weeks again um, to, to speak to our partners and I can see that making a difference to us that market and you know other than that wouldn't it be great if we could get back into Australia you know yeah. um look we've got we've still got travel restrictions we've got huge flight costs we've got 
all these problems that we've got to face, but it has to get better at some point. And I would love to see us get back into certainly that Asia Pacific, you know, Australia, Asia Pacific area, I think is a territory that, that would see a major snooker event in the future. Um, and of course, couldn't have a better ambassador than Neil Robertson. Exactly. Uh, following uh, Hussein Rafai on social media over the summer has been very interesting. He's seemingly met a lot of very important people. I've got no idea what putting on a tournament in Iran would be like, but that would be great. I'd, I'd love to. And by the way, you're speaking to the right person because I will go, I will get off the plane and go anywhere in the good name <laughs> of this sport. Iran for me is exciting. I think, you know, it, it's clearly a big market for snooker. Um, there's a lot of clubs, there's a lot of good players, um, and there's a lot of passion for it. Well, Phil, I'm thinking maybe we were going to do this a bit later, but it, it fits in while we're on the subject of sort of venues. We've had a lot of of response and messages from Ireland asking about a ranking event in the Republic of Ireland and why, for example, we we can't go back to golf. So it, is there a reason we can't? It's a it's it's a fabulous venue. Is it is it in the is it in your head? Is it in your plans at all? It, it, yeah, it's cer it's certainly one of those we're looking at. I mean, I have to say, you know, credit credit to Jason Francis and the World Seniors. That you know, um, we you know we were trying to do something there with the seniors, and you know, in the end, I think Snooker Legends did their own um, exhibition type thing there. It looked great. It was full. It just shows you that the market is there. These these events are. We've gone over a period of, sort of the last 10 years from doing PTC events, events at a level which we could probably deliver in most in most territories to delivering much bigger events with much bigger prize money, much bigger television distribution. You know, big events have got bigger and to do to, to deliver events in those territories, we've got to be able to make those events viable at the end of the day. Uh, and and oh, as we know, the business model has to be made up of so many different areas. It's television sponsorship. It's, you know, local support on the ground, um, TV distribution. There's so many, you know, contributing factors to making an event um, viable and sustainable. What we don't want to do is one-offs. We want long-term sustainable events. So I think, I mean, you know, Ireland would be great. We've, we've seen great players. Goffs is a fantastic venue. Really, it is. And um yeah, it, it's 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 of interest. I think Goffs gets a mention on this podcast as much as the Crucible does. It's very very popular. Did you ever play there? I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, sadly, I didn't. I, I went over there once, um, um, but uh, no, honestly, it's it's one of those things. Snooker is is perfect played in the round, and it's a circular theatre. Perfect. Uh, another tournament question we're going to ask you about. Uh, Gibraltar's gone off the calendar this year. Is that is that gone for the season, or is that, is that might that slide back in? Well, again, you know, Gibraltar is um, it's one of those sort of slightly smaller events that was was locked into a little area in the calendar. That I have to say, I mean, at this moment in time, that that part of the calendar is still a little bit fluid. Whilst we've put it out there, we've put out there what what is the minimum of what we're delivering, but actually we're probably going to infill with a few things, you know, will it be a Gibraltar? Will it be another territory? Will it be another market that we're looking at for the future? So there's, there's potentially some gaps to be filled around that time. But Gibraltar has been great snooker. You know, they've, they've been great events, really. It's always, it's always produced some interesting stories. You never really know what's going to happen. I quite like that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to ask you a bit more about the, the the crucible there, the aforementioned mentioned a few moments ago. Um, 
How realistic is this idea of a crucible two? I mean, it's incredibly ambitious. The, the, the plans look quite amazing. It, how much realism can we place on it at the moment? Well, you know, the sport is very big these days internationally. And, you know, we've seen in other sports how, you know, how venues and facilities get built and regeneration goes on in towns and cities you know Sheffield are a, a great partner of ours and we are talking to Sheffield City about what the future of snooker looks like it's a very important event for Sheffield we, we know that from uh, not just the fact that they like to have us there and we like to be there but in terms of the investment it brings into the city in terms of uh, revenue direct spend in the city over not just over the 17 days there's the direct spend, which happens during the event, but actually the indirect benefit to Sheffield is it becomes internationally famous. It becomes a destination. It's helped fill up the universities with students and all these things that, that, that go on and on, you know, and some of the studies that have been done, you know, I mean, I think the last independent study done by Sheffield uni was, I think it said that, um, you know, Sheffield had benefited by a minimum of about a hundred million um in terms of, of direct income but actually it's probably a lot more than that if you if you identify the indirect benefits that have been received so is it realistic well when you start to when you start to stack that up um it, it, financially it, it it possibly is realistic but at what point i mean there's lots of talk about investment going north there's lots of talk about leveling up funds coming out there's you know you know there is there are funds out there being spent and, and there are funds being spent on sport now we've not been the beneficiary a lot of the time of, of funding which is spent on sport now maybe it's a time for that change and maybe that it is a time um for us to, to to see how that can be made possible but it will take a lot of people around the table sheffield city are keen to engage with us they are talking to us um the architect who did the design their concept designs they, they, you know let me make no mistake they're their concept drawings at this moment in time um but sheffield is a fast developing city and every credit to the to the vision actually there because i remember sheffield being very young and not not living too far from from that area and it was really quite you know quite derelict after the war and so on and and, it, and it's taken a long time to get going, but but now certainly the last ten years, it's it's it, it's unbelievable what they've done in that city centre. Um, so you never know, you never know. Let's not let's not rule anything out. Yeah. This might not be a question for you, as you're not an architect, but I know you have spoken to the architect. And when this comes up, I always think, is there no, is there no way of just making the playing space in the in the actual crucible bigger, so the debate about whether there's enough fans in there could go away, or is that just not feasible? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question, isn't it? It, it is a good question. I mean, the, I think the one thing that we all agree on is that the Crucible is iconic. And to think about a move from it, a complete move from it, it's, you know, it's almost, uh, oh, it seems crazy, doesn't it? But, but, act, but, but, it, but you know what? We do need more facilities. You know, let's look at where the sport is today. You know, the sport is, is growing enormously in terms of its viewership. We know there's a demand for more and more people around the world to want to visit the city. We know that there is there is more demand for hospitality, more 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 demand for corporate. We we need more facilities. We need growth in, in the event. Um, we've done a lot of work around the masters, as you know. Um, 
and the Masters now is starting to look big in comparison to the Crucible. So, you know, that, that, that we really need to think about the, the future of the World Snooker Championships in that respect. Uh, it will always be the greatest event, the greatest atmosphere. Um, so we'll tread very carefully on, on whatever is done going forward. But uh, like I say, it, 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 it needs to involve a lot of partners. Um, we're not Sheffield City. We're, we're, you know, we're the sport. We're the, we're the guest in the city, shall I say. And we'd like to work closely with them to, to um, you know, just to, to stay there forever, I suppose. Mm -hmm. it, 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 that, that's the bottom line. It, it, wherever it is, if it's in a, a remodeled crucible, uh, two different buildings, you want the tournament to stay in Sheffield long, long, long term. I think I think it's history really tells us that that's, that's a sensible move. Um, but, you know, do you know what? You know, things change. Administrations change, you know, not just on our side, but in, you know, in, in the city side as well. I'd, you never know what the future holds. But all, all I can say is there's a great deal of goodwill from Sheffield, from ourselves, from everybody around that table to 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 work together. To keep it there, uh, that 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 certainly is the feeling. Mm. Perhaps we'll perhaps we'll move on to another another topic now, which is which is prize money. I mean, we do hear a lot of of people on here. We had Stephen Hallworth on here talking very eloquently about he thinks uh, first round losers should be paid, should get expenses. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, this is this is the the great debate that's been going on for quite a long time. We know what Barry's opinion of it was. <laughs> Um, he was no chance. <laughs> um, you never say never. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I when I first entered the sport as a player, we, I know we touched on my playing earlier on, there were players hanging around in the sport, um, really just um, because they were on guaranteed prize money. You know, all right, was not a lot of money, but it, it was, it, it, it created a, a little bit of a lethargic atmosphere shall we say amongst some of the, the lower ranked players and I certainly wouldn't want to see that creep back in I think we've moved on a lot from that by the way and I think the standard is so compact you know highly competitive now that it's unlikely um I, I don't think the the answer is is guaranteed prize money but but yes if there if we do go into some kind of arrangement where there's a you know a contribution towards expenses or, or you know I think that 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 may be possible but but First things first, we've got to fill the calendar with big events. We need to get China back on. We need to get this, this calendar back up to full capacity before those decisions are made. And I think that's where the priorities lie at the moment. I suppose what um, a lot of people, when they talk about the subject, struggle with it is that the players at the bottom aren't suggesting that more money in the game or anything. It's just a slight redistribution of the current prize money. And... You hear a lot of top players even saying that you know they would forego some of their you know, last sixty-four money or last thirty-two money just to be pushed down. So just so you're not losing money, I think that's the point. People are desperate to to make money for the losing first round, obviously, because I think everyone accepts they don't deserve that. But just so you're not, you know, it's not costing you to go to work. I think that's the point. Yeah, I I I do actually I do understand the argument, and uh, you know, and you know, we've had the d discussion with our, our members and our players on on a number of occasions. What I will say is that this year there has been a significant redistribution of prize money. Mm -hmm. uh, every event this year has been looked at from prize money from top to bottom, and prize money has been redistributed. 
And that's for two reasons. One is to is to make it more viable for some of those players. I mean, for the first time now, players are, you know, most players are on a guarantee in the UK and the World Championships. Now, you know, so so there is there are some guarantees now in, in place because of the seeding structure brought in for those events. But in the other events, we've actually gone through them line by line and we have um, tried to even out the increases in prize money in those early rounds. And, and like I say, it's two reasons. One is financial, but the other reason is the effects that the prize money has on the prize money ranking system. Because if you've got huge jumps in prize money, that clearly affects players that are jumping in those, you know, through those rounds. So that it should stabilize that a little bit better this year. Well, that makes sense. And as I say, it is a topic that people, a lot of people talk about in the game. And actually, is it not a concern to you that some young, young players that struggle for a while on tour, certainly early on, I mean, this is worst case, we may potentially lose talent because we all know about the history of the game, about some players that have even fallen off tour. They've gone on to become superb players. Is there not a danger that someone becomes so frustrated? Oh, I'm just making nothing. I'm losing money here. I want to go and do a different job, find a different job they might be quite good at. Nowhere near as good as they are at snooker, but they just find they might as well do it. I mean, these are you know potential live worries. Yes, Nick, you're absolutely right. And you've hit the nail on the head. It's about it's about stability. It's about um, it's about opportunity. We mention opportunity all the time. Opportunity means being able to join the tour and stay long enough to prove yourself. And, and I understand also that, you know, I, I work obviously internationally, um, as you know, and, you know, some players can't afford to make that jump of, of coming to the UK, staying in the UK for three months. You know, the cost of a flight to the UK is a cost of a family home in some places in the world, you know? So there, there are all these considerations that, that need to be brought into this debate. Um, and it is a concern for me, uh, you know, as chairman of WPBSA, is is that new talent wins, qualifies, joins the tour and has a start. They need at least a start um, in life. Again, I relate to my old my own career when I think about this, because we, you know, back in those late 80s, we were involved in what was a quite a vibrant amateur tour. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about, you know, you, you might win the Fontins or you might win a few events. The chances chances are you 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 were given that start before you joined the World Snooker Tour financially. You, you were actually not, you weren't at a zero start, shall we say. Whereas I think today, I think there are players that are at a zero start when they join the tour. They've put everything into turning professional. They finally just make it. The good thing is we've got rid of entry fees. Entry fees were a cost of around £5,000 to every player about, it's not that long ago, I forget what year it was we changed it. And we, you know, we managed to remove all barriers in that respect to entering events. So that was a huge contribution towards that. The next contribution is how does that player arrive here from somewhere and stay here and have enough money to survive? Well, what I can say is that we are reshaping the amateur side of this. The thing we're doing in QTOR, by developing a QTOR, by looking at the way we're running the World Amateur Championships through our World Snooker Federation, each player that wins a tour card now receive, receives a financial bonus the week before they join the World Snooker Tour. This is a model which I think can work you know, worldwide. 
Um, it's not huge, but it's enough. It's enough to start and have a chance. So it's not only the prize where you win in, in, in the World Snooker Federation Championships. The day, day or week before you join the tour, £2,000 per player drops into that bank account. It's a part of the prize money, which is held back to the day they sign up to join the tour. It's, it's, we're trying to, what we are trying to develop is a career pathway system. Uh, rather than just say, why, well, who's going to play and who are the winners? We're trying to develop a system which, which is defined and there are advantages of being in that system. And I don't think that's ever existed properly in our sport, but I do think we're moving in that direction. Yeah, that sounds very encouraging. And that reminded me what you were talking about there, about people coming over. You did do that great work with the Ukrainian guys uh, earlier this year, didn't you? And um, I've been into Victoria's a couple of times. There's, there's a handful of Ukrainian players still there. I mean, could you explain just what happened there? Yeah, I, I mean, look, we would have done it for anybody. And, you know, you know, it was a, a tragic situation. We, we ran the World Snooker Federation Championships in Sheffield. Um, we, we found during the event that, um, you know, uh, things had gone, um, you know, really badly in, in Ukraine. And we, we, we'd effectively got players that were stranded, uh, young players as well. Um, I have to say, I have to thank the player side of the WPBSA as well, who who stepped in on this as well. And um that that have that have supported them and, and basically we managed to put them into apartments and 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 keep you know keep them in Sheffield along with uh, along with parents as well because there were you know there were traveling traveling parents with them. Um, I, I I think actually is today I think we're down to one left. I think we've got one player left now where we've been helping them get relocated and and trying to help those players get settled somewhere. Um, it, it was a heartbreaking situation, to be honest. And, you know, I, I looked into the father of one of the players' eyes and I could just see, you know, his whole world had um, fallen apart. But for me, the most heartbreaking part of all of that was being there when the Russian junior players were hugging the Ukrainian players, saying goodbye, wondering if they're ever going to see them again. That, for me, was the most heartbreaking point because snooker is a family wherever you're from and I, I relate again to my own life the people around me and my friends all over the world are people I grew up with playing this sport and it doesn't matter where you're from you've spent time as you know as young people together you've lived together you've stayed in hotels together you've traveled slept slept on trains and in cars together and all these things you know and, and actually people are all the same really in that respect um, so that was quite it was quite an upsetting you know part to see that really um so um but look let's you know look there's huge problems in the world all over as we know all we can do we can look after our own we can do our bit is is what i say and uh you know as i say i, I must thank the players the wpsa players as well for um great support that they've given mm -hmm. You've you spoken very movingly there, Jason, about you know a, a very very difficult subject that's obviously touched so many of us. So so thank you for that. You are listening here, here to Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf, and we are with the WPBSA chairman Jason Ferguson. And we're going to move on now to a very sensitive matter, which is over Liang Wenbo. Now Liang Wenbo was given a twelve-month community order and fined £1,380 after being convicted of a domestic-related assault. He pleaded guilty to the charge. The player was initially suspended from World Snooker Tour events. Uh, that was back in the spring. Couldn't play in the World Championship. 
and was then later given a further ban until the start of August after an independent disciplinary committee hearing. That period has obviously now come to an end. Jason, we'd like to ask really, could you tell us a little bit more about the process and how that decision to give that ban to Leanne Wembo came about? Yes, and I, you know, and I, and I can understand that it, it may appear on the face of it um, as lenient towards somebody who's, who's who's clearly guilty of domestic violence. Not something we we we, we condone at all. Um, but we, from from our side of things, I mean, let, let me just set out the process and why, which is um, very important. Leamumbo was was charged of a criminal offence, and um, he faced the criminal court, and he was convicted. And we, we, we were not involved in that process at all. I have to say most sports out there in the world now would not touch a disciplinary matter, which is already being dealt with by a criminal court. Usually the competitor player sports person would, 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 would face whatever sentence has, has, has been uh, levied upon them. And that would be the matter because the sport can only really charge people against the rules of the sport so so we we did quite a little bit of research on this before even before i initially suspended Leng wambo i i have to say i felt so strongly about it that i took the decision to suspend Leng wambo um pending disciplinary and and also at that stage there was a risk that disciplinary proceedings could fail simply because he had already he'd already gone through what was a criminal process. So there was some risk upon the WPBSA to issue a suspension. But realistically, can I have a snooker player wandering around Sheffield who's been, uh, who's, who's just been convicted of, um, you know, domestic violence, um, a criminal offence? The answer is no, we have to make a stand. So I, I took the decision to suspend Wembo immediately and remove him from what was the world championship, his largest earning opportunity and, and biggest opportunity and an opportunity he needs probably to stay on the tour as well. Um, so not a decision taken lightly, but a decision taken for the right reasons and the right decision in my view. Uh, at that point, the disciplinary process has to kick in. There is a risk, there is a risk that, that, a, that an independent disciplinary hearing in sport could overturn the suspension that I have I have given the player, and that is purely based on the fact that he's already faced the criminal court and being convicted. Um, so the hearing uh, went ahead. They took the decision. In my view, I thought the I thought the outcome was lenient. Um, I have to say, we thought long and hard about you know because we we do have the right to appeal against some of these hearings as well. We thought long and hard about it, reviewed it. And again, we have to consider there's some risk of, of, of those proceedings failing. Um, so I took the view really, are we, are we better off having a conviction and dealing with the matter? Or are we better off carrying the risk that our, our own disciplinary proceedings could fail at a hearing? The decision was taken. We've accepted it. Um, we've moved on. We're not happy about the situation. Um, as a sport, we're not happy about what Lambo has done. We do not condone it. In fact, we're quite disgusted by it. But at the end of the day, we are, we are, we can only charge Liang Wambo against the rules of the sport. We can't charge him for the assault that took place. That's not what we can do. We do not have that jurisdiction to do that. We only have the jurisdiction 
to charge him against the rules of the sport. Has he um, done anything which would which would breach the rules of the sport? And 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 that's really where, why we've ended up where we are on it. And um, look, it's been a bit of an uncomfortable ride for us. Um, uh, let's see what happens. The, the original story really came out of nowhere when he was sentenced for it. Was, was it as much of a shock to you guys as, as it was to everyone else? Absolutely. We knew nothing about it. And uh, uh, to me, it, it really, it, well, it hit me like a steamroller sideways. I mean, I, I, it, it landed late on a Friday evening. Um, we had no idea that the assault had taken place in the first place. We had no idea that, the, that there was, um, that the police had been involved. And we had no idea that that hearing was taking that that criminal um, hearing was taking place. So yeah, it was it was a real shock to us um, that came out, and I was simply staggered that we we it could could have been kept from us. To be quite honest, especially as we're in and out of Sheffield all the time, we know everybody in Sheffield, and we just surely at some point something would have got out, but it didn't, and uh, we found ourselves in a very difficult position. And the independent sort of panel that deals with this stuff is is that the same people who deal with uh all the all the disciplinary matters or is it sort of assembled ad hoc as it were generally speaking uh, we, we you know that there would be a panel that's uh, that we would go to first but very often um you know there are times when you might bring somebody else into that panel um uh, to, to fill gaps so um, but yeah, and then again, you know, that there is, of course, a secondary process because Liang Wanbo still had a right to appeal that hearing. So there was still there was still some risk that uh, Liang Wanbo could appeal the fact that we'd given him secondary uh, prosecution. So, um, yeah, and at that point, it would have had to go independent again. Yeah. Uh, have you spoken to him directly at all through the process? No, no, not at all. No. I mean, a lot of fans are writing to us and saying, they are they are angry about it. They'll be angry to see him play. I mean, I guess you under, must understand that. Would you have a message for those fans? Yeah, look, I, I sympathise with how they feel. I mean, you know, we, we 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 too are very angry about it. We we're not we're not um, we're not comfortable with the situation. Um, but we do respect the independence of the systems that we've that we've got. We have to, um, you know, that they, they've they've been proven time and time again. Um, and we we also know that the restraints, you know, we also know the restraints of the rules that we've got and the limits that we can go to as a sport. Uh, and like I say, for you know, my message to those fans is: please don't think that we are charging Liang Wanbo for assault, and I'm only giving him that sentence. That is not the case. We are only charging him against the rules of the sport. It is the criminal court that charged him for the case, not us. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I can only speak for myself here, but it certainly seemed that, that that's where the, the fault with the sentence lied with the criminal court. It seemed That seemed extremely lenient to me. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from that then, perhaps. And thank you very much for asking those questions, answering those questions, Jason, because that's clearly not a topic that's, um, you know, that's, that's caused a lot of uh, angst in, in this, you know, the whole snooker community over, over recent months. We'll perhaps change tack, as I know we sometimes do on this on this podcast, Phil, into, into a sort of lighter matter. And something that does interest me, actually, uh, this is the Snooker podcast, of course, but you are the chairman of the, you know, WP Billiards SA. So that's part of it as well. We've had a question in from Brian Campbell. Um, I'm wondering, with Snooker being in such a good place, does Jason think that more could be done to raise the awareness of billiards in the public consciousness? Uh, Brian suggests, for example, on a couple of the quiet mornings at the Crucible, 
why not use that space to promote billiards to the public? Maybe invite a couple of players along to have a go at it. You know, even if you only get a couple of hundred people there, he says it, it's a start. So that's a nice idea from Brian. And, you know, how much work do you do within within billiards and what sort of shape is it in? Well, Jay, it's a really interesting question. And Brian, thank you for uh, writing in and mentioning billiards. I love billiards, by the way. I, you know, I used to play a little bit when I when I was playing because it's quite a fascinating game. You know, unfortunately, it doesn't make a great uh, spectator game because it can be quite repetitive. For us, for I call us the connoisseurs of Q sport. <laughs> we appreciate the great skill and we appreciate. But but for a television sport, it hasn't proved successful. Now, one thing I will say is Billions is in better shape now than it has been in for a very long time. Now, not a lot of people will know this, but yes, the WPBSA still is involved in old English billiards, the traditional three three cushion game, which is, of course, our founding sport. So let's have some respect for mm -hmm. history and heritage and all that. Um but what we did when we when we restructured the WPSA, there was clearly no interest in World Snooker commercially to to take billiards along with it, and um, so so it remained within within the WPSA. So what we did, we looked at the billiards budget. What we had was one event per year, which the billiards fraternity, and uh, there was only a handful of players by the way at the time, were using that budget just to put one event on per year. So what I'd said to every, the guys was, look, here's there's the deal. The billiards budget will go to billiards people and we will establish World Billiards as a subsidiary company of the WPBSA. So if you think of World Snooker as a commercial operation on a much bigger scale, World Billiards is the same kind of principle on a smaller scale. And billiards people run billiards. And I have to say, it it's done reasonably well. Um, look, there's not huge amounts of prize money, but billiards is currently being played in various parts of the world. The last World Billiards Championship was actually the best one I've seen probably in 30 years. Um, it, it was run at the RAC Club in Melbourne, and it was run by our subsidiary World Billiards Limited. Um, it was a beautifully presented event. It was streamed, and it was full. It had a crowd in. And you know what? We have some old photographs from it, and you could put that photograph on the wall in any museum, and you would say, "Oh, look at that old photo!" We almost had recreated the history and heritage <laughs> at the REC Club in Melbourne. So, so that kind of model, I think, really works for English billiards. But the, the guys, Jason Colbrook, um, leads a team of people, um, and uh, he's based out in Singapore, um, and I and I and I and I believe that the next World Billiards Championship will probably be in that part of the world because it is played in Asia. It's quite popular in Thailand. They, they use it in the clubs. It's, a lot of players use it for training. So a lot of the Thai players know billiards quite well. Uh, it's still played in Australia, which is quite popular, New Zealand, um, all that Asia Pacific region actually do play. So it, it has some potential, but in terms of building it into a, into a TV spectacle like snooker, we have to be realistic. It, it, it isn't going to happen at that level. Um, as for, uh, Brian's question about integrating it to the Crucible during the World Super Championships. What we have to remember is, and you guys know this even better than me because you're in, the, in and around the chaos at the press room and what's going on, it is a full-on event. And to try and stick in just a small little thing is like a, it's like trying to move the Titanic. So 
you know, it won't work in that way. But as a standalone sport, English billiards is alive and well. That's the message. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I think we'll just flit around with the questions uh, that seem quite random here. But we're, as we get, move towards the end, we'll, we'll get some good ones in. Um, this, this one came up uh, when we had Rebecca Kenner on the other week. And it's about the situation how um, we can't at the minute stream women's super tournaments if they've got the tour players on. And can we do anything about that? Yeah, I think I think um, where we are at the moment with with women's snooker is let's women's snooker is is we, we run that under the WPBSA, um, and again there's a little bit of a story behind that. Mandy Fisher, who has been amazing over the years, has has kept women's snooker going year after year after year from when she was a player, and today she's the president of World Women's Snooker. WPBSA is still the world governing body to women's snooker, so again subsidiary organisation. World Women's Snooker runs women's events. We, we run what is a development tour. So what, what I would say is try not to think of it as a, as a competitor to the World Snooker Tour because the World Snooker Tour is a mixed gender open sport. Um, the World Women's Tour is a developmental tour, a bit like we're running Q Tour. It's like we're having World Amateur Championships. It's run in that way where we're trying to develop it in, and, and develop more players. Um, it is a growing product. I do expect that women's snooker will get stronger and stronger. Uh, there's a significant um, uh, number of competitors around the world now. The standard is going up. And as you know, top four players will be appearing on TV this year. It's progress. But the, the, the depth of players, we still need more players. We still, we still need to continue driving it. So it's run predominantly as a development tool. The one thing we don't like to do we don't like to put snooker up on television in com in in direct com competitive nature to the World Snooker Tour. If the World Snooker Tour's on, we don't really want to put snooker on TV again because it makes sense for nobody. We want the snooker audience to be able to watch all of the snooker, really, not just some of it. So whilst it's developing, um, we don't want to clash or or do anything like that with our television. So, um, but. In terms of streaming it, we can do it. But what we don't want to do is just, just stream it at low level. We think it deserves a lot more than that. If, it, if we do it, we'd like to think we're going to do it properly in a venue with proper lighting, proper rigging, and make a real proper event out of it. It is showing the signs of developing, is what I would say. So keep the faith on this one. We're seeing the standard go up. We're seeing the quality go up. We're seeing the players performing. And we're seeing more people and more countries involved. So um, I, I do think it's got a great future in snooker. But let's not forget also, it's come from a, a standing start. And, and, and the reason for that is, let's look in our history. A lot of snooker clubs, and shall we dare I call them gentlemen's clubs or whatever, over the years, there were so many clubs over the years that didn't allow women in certain rooms in the clubs. And that is a problem, which I have to say, we have solved. In fact, we don't respect any club that doesn't let women in. We, we, in fact, we, we ridicule them every time we get the chance. We must have an open sport. And now we're seeing more clubs that have got more families in. We're seeing more young girls playing. Um, we know when we did schools and school programmes, we know that around 40% of, of the pupils that wants to carry on playing were girls. So it's really, it's really encouraging, actually, where it's going. 
and hopefully we can get Microsoft into sponsoring some more events. That's a good well, thing, isn't it? Isn't that a great uh, a great name? And you know what? Isn't it isn't it great to see that you know it's actually women's snooker that's that's bro- that's broken the ground there in terms of putting a ranking event on. And so uh, we're we're really looking forward to Seattle and the guys out there have done a great job of uh, making that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, that's marvellous. And perhaps a, a word for the world mixed doubles. Good, good chance to say we had a draw for that. And I thought it was terrific to see ITV racing coverage dip into snooker on Saturday. That was a fabulous profile for the sport. And the draw is actually as follows. Uh, Neil Robertson will play with Mink. It's Ronnie O'Sullivan and Rianne Evans, Judd Trump and On Yee. Mark Selby and Rebecca Kenner. I mean, that's going to be a brilliant event, Jason. Great idea. I'm sure it's going to be executed brilliantly. And, uh, you know, myself and Phil are often messaging each other saying, we, you know, we, we both personally can't wait for it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely one that, that's that's going to get some attention. Listen, great great job by ITV. And, and you know, and great to see that Snooker is actually going to be on ITV1. You know, this is not not a secondary channel. It's right at the forefront. So really excited about it. And uh, I was I was at the draw at the weekend. There's a lot of um, passion. I'll just just to let you know, it wasn't, you know, just to let you know, it was done properly. And I oversaw it. The live draw, it was done. Um, and it was it was great to see Hayley Turner, who, mm. who, who is one of the greatest female sports people you ever meet so passionate about snooker she comes to our events often as you know you'll have seen her in and out of the press room she's a huge snooker fan and didn't she speak well about it and do a great job for us um so it is going to be a great event and you know i wouldn't like to to pick how it's going to go it's going to be highly competitive um we know that uh i mean the dream team came out of the bag didn't it you know ronnie o'sullivan and rianne evans how many world titles is that between them? It's quite a lot. Oh. Uh, so that you know they'll take some beating, but in in a doubles format, you never know. You know, there's players like Selby. You know, they don't give anything away, do they? And and uh, <laughs> you know, anything could happen. I think um, fans seem unanimously very excited about that event. Uh, there were a few players when that got announced who were disappointed it wasn't a tournament that everyone could play in effectively. But I mean, we've said on here, I guess you've got it in over those two days in the same venue as the British Open, just because that's how it presented, an opportunity that presented itself. Yes, yeah, and it is. And clearly there's huge demand for women's sport at the moment. It's great to see what happened in football recently. And, uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed the Commonwealth Games, actually, as well, you know, seeing seeing uh, everyone compete there. And, you know, it, 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 it's got to happen. The way to grow women's snooker is to give it the profile it deserves. You know, I've got a lot of, people saying well you should just have the women's game and you should have the world snooker tour as a men's game no the world snooker tour is opportunity for all that's the message of our sport the women's tour is growing and developing but in order to grow it further and develop it further into a mainstream product we need to give it profile and to do that we'll use the world snooker tour mixed gender sport everybody will benefit i think it's a great event and um I think I'm really excited about it. It's a weekend, and I, I get—I do get the fact that some of the players are saying, "Hang on a minute, Jason. You know, there's gaps in the calendar and so on." You know, we we spoke earlier about um, why that is, but actually, this is a weekend. It's one weekend that we can showcase the great message of our sport, and it can only do good, in my view. Mm. I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Commonwealth Games. I must say, congratulations to the City of Birmingham, all the organisers. What a wonderful event that was! One that I think really delighted to move move the nation. But do, do you feel a, a sort of pang of regret when you see all those wonderful sports that we've enjoyed 
over the last couple of weeks and that snooker's not there. Can't blame you for the sins, of, if you call them sins, or the inertia of past eras. But shouldn't this wonderful game of ours be at a special event like that? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm quite passionate about multi-sport games. Um, you know, and and obviously, you know, and and I was involved in this in developing snooker in Asia, the World Games in Japan, uh, back in 2001. You know, all those years ago was one of my first major project projects. And it, and I saw the light. I thought, wow, we can put our sport on this huge global platform and promote it in all these countries in Asia, one of those being China at the time. And look where that got us. So, you know, it's it's exciting to see these things. I, I mean, I will tell you, I was at the Commonwealth Games for a few meetings um, as a guest there, and I, I really enjoyed it. And 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 again, you know, you said it yourself, Nick. Fair play to Birmingham, by the way. Mm. The city was bouncing. I mean, oh. I, I, it was brilliant. I, I, was I dead myself. Do, do you know what? I, I don't normally. I'm not normally a big fan of temporary seating, but they did it so well at the Alexander Stadium. There was such a grandeur about that stadium. And there were proper roars. I, I was at the track and field on Saturday. Proper roars. As you say, the centre of town. That bull. Now, that bull, you can't beat a bit of bully. It was a one-way system to go around and see the bull. I mean, that that what a symbol. <laughs> unbelievable. The, the city was unbelievable, honestly. They did such a wonderful job. And it just showed, actually, it just show you what Birmingham are capable of in terms of sport. And, um, you know, it, it, it's exciting. Commonwealth Games. You know, I have to say, one of my um, colleagues, Nigel Oldfield, was involved in trying to put a bid together for the Commonwealth Games quite many years ago when it was in Manchester. And, um, you know, we got close to a demo event. You know, Olympics, Commonwealth, you know, World Games, all these games, that there's a, there's a part to play in them. Commonwealth, for me, seems to be a no-brainer. If you look at the 72 nations in the Commonwealth Games, I've got the list here, actually, on my desk. I've been ticking them off, you know. Yep, we've got activity there. Yep, we've got activity. I've gone down the list. There is not a Commonwealth country that hasn't got a snooker table. You know, it's 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 just got to happen for us. So it's about the powers that be. It's about the Commonwealth, you know, Games Federation. It's about, sometimes it's about the politics and you know, I, I I don't mind working hard on the politics to to get what we want, but I would love to see the opportunity for our uh, some of our players to enjoy those moments of representing their country. And you know, who wouldn't want a gold medal on their wall? You know, absolutely. Uh, this was an interesting segue from there, as you mentioned, Birmingham, and we got a message in from Robert Dunn asking just if there's any plans or any thoughts about going up for a tournament in the northeast. But I think sort of broaden that out a bit to. Um, I sometimes wonder why there aren't more tournaments in, in the sort of the biggest cities of the UK, you know, Manchester or Leeds or Bristol or Birmingham, as you mentioned, Newcastle. What what are the sort of barriers to get tournaments into those kind of places? I think it's it's really about support on the ground. I mean, we, we spoke about Sheffield early, you know, Sheffield are a they're a city that work with us on a major event. When we're there, you Phil, you know you you're in Sheffield a lot and you see it, it's absolutely everywhere. The lead up, the build up, the 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 branding, the the outdoor activities, everything evolves around the event, and it really does make a city rock and put smile, smiles on people's faces. And you know that's something that hits home when you see events like the Commonwealth Games. Um, but yeah, major cities. What 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 I'm one of the things I really want to do, and this is probably me personally wants to do. I really want to drive that aspect within within world snooker of, of how we can engage with a city to deliver an event so we're not just turning up for 
one month or two weeks or one week. We're actually there for the builder or we're there with activity on the ground all year round. And that's the kind of thing I want to keep working at. Um, we've been quite successful at it in some in some areas um, and in other areas, some events have not really found a home yet. And but again, it's about those councils sharing our vision with our sport. We, we all know that, you know, some major sports probably get a little bit more attention than, than ours. Um, but actually, our sport in terms of its global output is, is enormous. And actually what we can do for a city, there are many of the sports out there cannot do. So, mm. you know, I'm I'm working on how we can get that message across now. Mm. And you can just see how much people are, are, are into tournaments. We, we've had a few like this, but it's summed up by uh, John Jew, who says, Dear Nick and Phil, continue, continue congratulations on outstandingly entertaining and compelling podcast. And thank you to Jason for giving up time to be such an informative guest. Much appreciated. We never leave out praise, Jason, by the way, if you're wondering why. I know we're running out of time. We never, it's a gold, it's a golden commandment of Hagen Metcalf. We never leave out praise. Well, thank my, you very much. My, my query is regarding the change of venue for the forthcoming Welsh Open. Uh, having attended both sessions of the final for the past five seasons, uh, travelling from Swansea, we have thoroughly enjoyed our annual ritual Therefore, we were saddened to see the tournament go to Clandidno. And uh, he mentions here that it's easier and cheaper to go to Ali Pali for the Masters instead, which is what we are doing. So keeping in the snooker family, but still, he's saying uh, a lot of fans are, they're going to miss the tournament uh, being in South Wales. Mm. Would Jason consider doing a recce to the newly built Swansea Arena, perhaps as a potential future venue? Why was the tournament moved to Clandidno? Well, look, yes, we would consider doing a recce. In fact, I think one of our guys has done a recce. If not, we, there's one on the cards to do a recce at Swansea. But but look, the the, the thing about Landudno is, right, like, it's a long way, actually, from South Wales. I do sympathise with people living in South Wales because it's a huge journey to actually go from one end of Wales to the other. Um, and, and it's been quite successful. I, I thought the last venue we used... Uh, you know, this new centre in uh, Newport next to the, the, the Celtic Manor. What a fantastic venue that was. And we went in there with eyes open going, wow, this is fantastic. But let's just remember that we, at the time, were one of the first events in there. The event was only partially open for us. When we go back there, there could be three or four other events on, rock concerts in the next room. Now, as a multi-use facility, that's not going to work with snooker. So that so there was the problem why we couldn't go back into that venue. It, it's to do with the fact we do not have sole use of it. It would be it's a sectional venue. We would have one area of it, and the chances are there'll be music or something a lot, uh, you know, a lot noisier than, than us next door. Um, and we have we have looked around uh, everywhere. Landudno actually has been quite successful in terms of putting events on, and and actually they were great for us uh, during that COVID time. You know, just after COVID for picking up some events as well um i have to say you know sandunno have, have, have sort of stepped up and said look we want to welcome you we we want to host you we want to work with you uh we know that part of wales is welsh speaking as well they want to work with us on that and how we can deliver that message we also know that bbc wales is involved and you know the uh, the direction of travel for that is to make sure it's very welsh um, and look, we're, we're trying it. I mean, it, it's it's there for one year at this moment in time. Um, it's a trial, one year, to see if we can make it work there. 
Um, but again, you know, who knows where it will end up? We we are open to options. We are open to cities and councils working with us. Um, and look, let's let's see. Don't rule anything out. I would say. Uh, I think we're sort of running out of time now, Nick. But there's definitely one. Uh, I'll just have one more from me, which isn't really a question, but. Um, when we spoke a few months ago, Jason, you told me a remarkable story that sounded like it was out of a, a Hollywood film of a car crash you were unfortunately in, but it turned out to be quite a story. And I said to you at the time, you're going to have to come and tell us on the podcast. So if you wouldn't mind, can you recount oh, that incredible yeah. tale? Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know what raised that conversation when we were talking, but yeah, you know, I travel a lot. Ridiculous sometimes, you know, and, and and really late at night and through the night and things like that. And over the years, you you know, you have a few close shaves, don't you? But yeah, many, many, uh, many years ago, I had a terrible car accident, actually, in um, it's in Greece. And uh, it was a, in a taxi. We were, we were in the mountains in, in Greece and uh, uh, we were coming down the mountainside going on our way to the airport. And the um, the taxi driver had a stroke at the wheel. And uh, there we were on the edge of a ravine, um, flying down a mountain with no driver, basically. And I, I was, uh, I was, you know, I, was, I knocked the car out of gear. I was trying to steer the car from the passenger side, and it was, uh, it was a horrendous situation, really. It's like something you see in a movie, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I eventually managed to scrape the car on the wall, and you know, knock it around on some rocks, and tried to try and stop the car. And had uh, you know, my children and. Uh, you know, we're in the car as well. And uh, eventually I had to, you know, the car was up on, it was up on its side at one point. We were, we were going really quite fast you know, down a very steep mountainside. And uh, yeah, it, eventually I managed to uh, crash the car into some trees and, you know, it was it was horrendous to be honest with you. And, you know, the the, the doors hanging off, the bonnet was all, you know, and, um and uh, eventually, and I was, we were still on a very steep hill, but I got, I got out of the car and, and got my, got my children and everybody out and, and dragged them up, got them up the hill because when I got out of the car, I was stood in petrol. The, the petrol was, yeah. tank was burst. I was, I was, I was stood in petrol and um, I got the children up the hill and got, got the, my family away from it all. And uh, I looked back down the hill at the car, which was just a complete wreck, you know, and, we were all a bit battered and bruised and injured, and and the driver was was hanging out of the car. He was hanging out of the car. His leg was trapped, and but I could see he was still breathing. So uh, I went back. I went back down the hill for him, and I dragged him up the hill away from the fuel. And uh, he was he was completely out, you know, really. And uh, I don't know. I'd forgotten about it, Phil. Until I forget what raised it when you and I were sat talking. Yeah, no, we were okay. talking about. Some, we were talking about some accident or something. I said, "Oh, something happened to me." And I, but yeah, so it was it was a horrendous accident, and I was so close. I was, I was millimeters from going over the end of the cliff at one stage on two wheels of the car. And all I remember is looking through the driver's window down this what was like a ravine, you know. And uh, we were very lucky. We were very very lucky. And uh, but the, the amazing thing was that. We, you know, eventually an ambulance came and the police came and eventually, you know, we, we went home. But I, I receive every year that I get a message from the, the the driver's son. He always, every year sends me a Christmas card. So, oh, thanks for saving my dad's life, you know, and, and stuff. And um, yeah, it was, uh, was one of those where you say to yourself, Jason, that was one trip too many. You know? <laughs> 
I you know, and uh, I guess the odds increase the more you do it, the more you travel, you know, and, and things. But yeah, it was a it was a, a very close shave that one. Yeah, well, I hope I didn't bring yeah. up any horrible memories, but it's just such a story. I thought it had to it had to be yeah. told. I'd forgotten about it to be honest. I'd forgotten about it up until the point I collapsed with a bad back. You know, about five years. You guys will know. You see me shuffling around for a <laughs> few years, right? I had a bad back and I collapsed completely at home one day. And uh, I blacked out because the, the nerve in my back was completely trapped. And I, I struggled and struggled. And the, the players were great to me. You know, when I, when I finally got back on my feet again, the players were great to me. They were carrying, they were carrying me around the world, you know, helping me on and off planes and, and things. And I managed to get back to, to good health again. But uh, the, one, the one moment I remembered about that crash was that I was, I was struggling. I was in China and I was really struggling. And uh, one of the, one of the guys in the sports medicine place in Shanghai, he said, look, he said, I'm going to take, we'll get you to the doctor. So he took me into the doctor and the doctor said, no, you, you need to have this scanner. They've got all this MRI scanning equipment close by. And they put me into this, this scan. And within, you know, an hour, I had an MRI scan of my back, which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And the doctor put it up on the wall and he went, oh dear. Oh dear, <laughs> in Chinese, of course. And uh, anyway, I said, "What's the matter?" He said, "Oh, he said, you know, he said this is bad, and I've got permanent damage from my spine." And he he said to me, "He said, when did you have your big accident?" I said, "What accident?" Um, and I suddenly went, "Oh yeah, because I did. I injured my back in the accident. Yeah, and I, and apparently I damaged my my lower spine. Something that's not going to get better, but I can live with it and I can manage. So don't write me off, anybody. I'm ready. Wow. All right." <laughs> yeah wow that was yeah. um an unlikely uh entry yeah phil mentioned a bit a couple of nights ago that he might bring that up and then i'd forgotten that you even said that phil so that yeah was, yeah i forgot i'd, I'd forgotten all about it till phil said something to me well, one night oh yeah. that's um that's yeah. quite something yeah what what, what an escape and uh, yeah what, what what a story that that is jason well we're gonna we're, we're gonna finish off i think generally maybe a good one to finish in is on gareth collins on email who asks uh, about the, the future of the game. He says, thank you for continuing to provide us with regular podcasts and talking about the game we all love. My question is, where do you see the game in five years in terms of growth, inclusion, and maybe when the class of 92 are no longer at the top of the game? Well, they might be longer than five years for those three rascals. Really appreciate you reading this out and your interaction on Twitter. Best wishes, Gareth. And I might add a general one to that for myself about the future. I hear yourself, Barry Hearn said it a lot, a lot of guys in snooker, oh, this is just the beginning. You know, we've got places to go. What Can you crystallise what you mean by that? Talk, as Gareth asked about um, five years' time, but also generally the future. How far can this sport go, Jason? Yeah, yeah it can go much further. I, I'll, I'll generalise when you look at this. When you look at the scale of, of, of a sport like football, and you realise the sheer volume of people that play it and and watch it and and go to events, and and truly global. You know, we've still got a long way to go. We are in countries all over the world. I think there's just over a hundred countries running national championships now. We've got you know we've got regional championships going on. We had you know three hundred and forty I think elite amateur players playing our world amateur this year. You know, amazing. Normally it's it's, it's growing and it's growing and it's growing, but it's there's a long way to go. What we need is we need governments around the world to accept snooker as the national sport that it is. And it, even in this country, it has taken us years of frustration to convince the powers that be that we are a proper sport. 
Now we've had to do a lot of work on that. We know we've had our political problems over the years and things like that, but we have, we are a proper sport and we're exporting live sport all over the world. So, so what we need is we need everybody to, to think this is not a game that somebody plays for recreation. It is a national sport and a national treasure in all these countries around the world. And it is. So that's the, that's the key. But looking at the looking at the talent development, we know because of what we're doing in internationally, we know there's been an influx of young players coming in this year. We know that we've had a, a good year for talent. But actually looking at our amateur events, we know there's an abundance of talent coming through. So we know about the class of 92. They are, you know, they've just been in a different league, really, for such a long time. But there is there's been an age gap in the in the talent coming through. The reason being us as a sport, we were not developing the grassroots properly for many, many years. The last 10 years, that's changed. We are now developing the grassroots. We're involved in the amateur sport as well. And I can tell you that the results are coming through. There is an abundance of youth and talent in this sport worldwide. And now it's about making sure we can deliver it worldwide and get that talent through and make it sustainable. Well, we can't thank you enough, Jason. You've been an absolutely brilliant guest. We're, we're honoured to have you on. It's, it's a real coup for us. And uh, sincere thank you. And we say this all with our guests, but we say it with knobs on right now. We could ask you so much, so so many more things, but you know, you know, we must keep it to some sort of time limit on a podcast, of course. And you've been absolutely brilliant. Will you come back and see us again one day? Of course, I will. Listen, guy, I'm always happy to see you guys. Like I said, whether it be in our press rooms, in and around, anywhere, always a pleasure. Thanks for all the hard work you do. And listen, and thanks for doing this blog as well. People are listening and it's great to see the engagement. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. What Nick said. And obviously just the nature of your role, we have to sort of fire sort of uncomfortable questions at you sometimes, mate. You're always oh, a pleasure to deal with. Thank you. All the best to you. What a brilliant guest. That's Jason Ferguson, the chairman of the WPBSA. Phil, we're back next time to preview the European Masters. But we're, we're going to shoot off ourselves. Uh, great to see you, sir, and uh, see you next time. Absolutely. Pleasure as always. So thank you very much indeed for your company. Keep your thoughts coming to us, talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. But for now, from Jason, Phil and myself, cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>